Hello. Hi, John. How are you today? Hi, Dan. How's your audio interface? You, if you can hear me, then I think it's not terrible. It's not the worst it's ever, but it's there's something. The focus, right, has, uh, as you would say, has gone tits yeah. up. Oh, dear. And uh, it's relatively new. It's a few months old and is completely, as you would say, kaput. Oh, it's kaput. It's kaput. Well, these are, these are uh, you know, scientific terms. Yes. And um, so if it's gone tits up and it is kaput, yes. then I don't know what to do except send it back. Am I right? Yes. I'm going to definitely be sending it back, uh, getting it fixed. All of that stuff, whatever has to yeah. happen. So I'm, I'm on the, um, I'm on the universal audio arrow, which yeah. is a wonderful device also. Uh, but it's, I had to quickly plug everything in and see if I could make it, you know, work with the different, cause I haven't used it for a while. And so I'm on a different mic and I, you know, this is what people I think want to hear us talk about. Oh yeah. So, oh, yeah. you know, well, uh, let me, let me, uh, let me tell you this about that. Yeah. Um, you know, uh, former long winters, well, not former cause the long winters never broke up. Long they winters they bass never broke player, up, John. No, they never broke up. Uh, long winters bass player, Eric Corson. Yeah. Is, uh, is now a full-time employee at universal audio in California. Is he really? Yeah. And, um, you know, they make, the best audio gear in the in the whole darn universe. Hands so, down my favorites. So why why haven't you with all of your um all of your internet millions <laughs> outfitted your whole studio in in universal audio equipment? Yeah, I used to have a much more expensive universal audio uh uh preamp audio interface and it was um it was an uh, like the Apollo 8, I think it was called oh, yeah. the Apollo Yeah. I loved that thing, but it was Thunderbolt and I, um, I had trouble with the computer that was Thunderbolt that was plugged in. And yes, I know you can adapt Thunderbolt to, uh, you know, to Thunderbolt three and all of that stuff. I'm aware of all of that stuff. It, oh, yeah, I'm sure, sorry. I called it Thunderbolt. It was Firewire. Apologies. Oof. Ouch. And You're going to you get a lot you, of letters. You can adapt Firewire to Thunderbolt. And I knew that. And I, I tried that. But then I, I had a friend who wanted to buy it for me. So I sold it to him and I got the little arrow kind of as a holdover. And now I think I'm just going to have to bite the bullet and spend the big bucks. And maybe can your friend get, you know, hook me up? Well, like a five, not a five finger discount, but like a four finger discount. It's very, um, it's very complicated here at the old relationship between john and eric oh but i don't i i could have a relationship with him separate from yours well the what the complication is that eric from the very beginning has said uh that universal audio doesn't do like friend deals right and a lot of people who work in various industries say oh sorry my my business doesn't do friend deals and sometimes it's true, right? Sometimes, like, for instance, the Gibson Guitar Company used to, 30 years ago, when they sponsored an artist, they would give that artist a Gibson guitar. Nice. That's the kind of sponsorship that you would expect if you were a Gibson-endorsed artist. But by the time I became an endorsed artist, they had stopped giving 
artists' guitars, and their new deal was you can borrow a guitar mm. for as long as you want, but if you want to buy it, you have to basically buy it at, you know, it's wholesale cost, but it's not, uh, wholesale cost is like, I don't know what, 90% of the actual cost. Not cheap. And that was, yeah, you know, it felt like a little bit of a kind of like, really? I mean, if I borrow this guitar and play it for five years and then screw it all up, you're not going to like sell it to me for fell off the truck rates. You're going to charge me $5,000 for it. Yeah. Yep. That was the deal. That was the deal. That was how they were going to manage their system. <laughs> and, uh, you know, that's fine. Now there are some, most of the rock music business yeah. is transacted in, uh, in perks and freebies. Perks and right. freebies. Yeah. Bands don't, you know, you don't get, bands never get paid as much as anyone thinks. But what you do get when you're, when you're a music business person or when you, when you've been in a band long enough that you, that you know people is that you get free tickets to everything and you get, you get access. That's what, that's what is part of the appeal of being a celebrity is access. It's a, and, and it's like any kind of privilege. It's a form of payment, right? Every, that's one of the, that's, that's basically what privilege breaks down to when people apologize for their privilege. What privilege really is, is payment in the form of access because there are people who would pay to get that access. And sometimes would pay a lot. And so if you can just calculate your access to things that, that comes to you free and that often feels like you deserve it or feels like it's your entitlement and just, just try and put a price on it for someone that didn't have it. And so like, for instance, there's hardly a rock concert in the United States that I can't waltz into. Because my access is such that if I don't know the band or if I don't know the people, I know someone who knows someone who knows someone. And somewhere along the line there, one of my friends is going to translate that friendship into a conversation with somebody else where they say, oh, and I need, there's somebody here that I need you to get on the list. Uh -huh. And they're not going to say, this is my buddy. He's in a little band that's, you know, but it, it just, it gets as it gets translated up, you become your stat, you know, you, your status becomes with people who don't know you connected to the status of the person who's asking on your behalf. Right. So when my friend Chad gets me into a rock concert because I'm in LA that night, it's not because I'm important. It's because Chad's important, but I'm important to Chad. But that doesn't work in a few worlds. It will never get you into a Rolling Stones concert. It will never get you into a Coldplay concert. Now, it might get you into a Paul McCartney concert. <laughs> but it will not. But there are other bands that just have, there are musical acts, big, big musical acts that are that are big enough that they can do things like say, 
no one, not even the not even the daughter of the president of my record company can just waltz in. Now, of course, that's a lie. The daughter of the president of the record company is always going to waltz in. But they, you know, they they start shutting down the gates on people like Chad's friend John pretty early in the in the game for these big big uh, you know, big operations. So you're you're your cash, you know, your, your status goes away and then your, your money's no good and you're back out on the street. Well, with United or with universal audio, mm-hmm. everybody wants a free or discounted piece of universal audio care. Sure. It's not a thing like it's just, it's not mass produced stuff. That's, that's basically as good as everything else. It's, you know, it's primo gear. Well, there are so many people out there doing audio who know that, who have a friend in, in the entertainment business, that it's plausible when Eric says they don't give free stuff. They don't even give me free stuff, which is the, that's the, that's the, um, the universal sort of tagline when someone's telling you that you can't have anything free, they say, I don't even get free stuff and I work there and you go, Oh, right. Mm -hmm. If they don't give him free stuff, he's never going to give me free stuff. But at the same time you go, "Mm, really though, is there really, you work right there. Is there really no way? (laughs) And there's, it's almost guaranteed that there isn't, Cause I know enough of these places that just, no, there's just no free. Like if you work at the Mac store, right. You can't just hand out Macintoshes. No, but you know, Tim Cook could, or Steve Jobs could have. I don't know. I know. I know for a fact that Steve Jobs gave Martha Stewart an iPad. I know this is a fact. (laughs) Really? Yes. This is a fact. You can look this up because she dropped it and she smashed it. Oh. And she made the comment publicly uh, to the effect of, well, this is the one that Steve gave me and I felt really bad about it. Oh, yeah. I feel bad about that too. The yeah, one that Steve yep. gave her. Well, um, in my, okay, I, have in a my little, case, I have a little story. I knew, I knew a guy who knew a guy who worked sure. at the Paul Reed Smith guitar factory. All right. Now, there's a term for the kinds of people who own Paul Reed Smith's guitars, um, uh-huh. Smiths, yeah. the Smiths, and yeah. uh, and and it's sort of there. It's kind of like the the same kind of person who has nothing to do with biker culture and just decides that because they're you know they want a motorcycle and they've got lots of money that they just need a Harley. Yeah. It's the same thing because these PRS guitars, which are beautiful guitars, are very expensive. There yeah. is no cheap PRS guitar. Um, but I loved these guitars. I loved the look of them. And I had the opportunity to play one in like a guitar center or something a few times. And I really liked them. Sure. And my friend told me, he's like, well, I have a friend who works there and they can get you very, very, very good discounts. Basically the same price that the music store would pay. 
So it's like half or whatever. It was very, you know, it was, it was as much as I had been looking at an Epiphone Les Paul. I got a PRS custom 24, like for the same price because I got it through this guy. Yeah. 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 And what they would do is that kind of cool is every, every, I think it was like every Friday, all of the guitars that had been made that week would come out and he would send me these pictures that he had taken of the guitars as they were basically like getting ready to be sent to music stores or whatever and said, do you like any of these? Ooh la la. And so, you know, a few, few weeks would go by and eh, nothing, this week, nothing. And then he finally found one that was perfect. that had the right top and everything else. And so I wound up getting that one. And when I went and sold this thing years later, I made three times what I paid for it. Which is that doesn't happen with a new guitar. That's that's only like a vintage guitar. But they I don't know. I, I mean, I wrote a check to uh, PRS guitars. It wasn't like the guy snuck it out the back door. Right. But it was like a friends and family kind of a thing. But I'm getting the impression Eric can't do that. Well, you know, f- interesting sort of addenda to your story or or connective tissue. You know, we love that here on the program. Um, <laughs> the guy that got Eric the job yeah. at Universal Audio is a um, longtime friend, uh, Mike Squires, mm. who went through a phase where he, uh, Mike, Mike's got a long and checkered work history. Uh, and not checkered in the sense that he uh, that he ever got fired from anything, or that um, that he worked for very long as a gigolo. Uh-huh. <laughs> but checkered in the sense that he's worked every kind of job. Right. Sure. And, and for a while, he was the Paul Reed Smith rep oh. for the West Coast, and he would he had a little van, and he would fill it up with Paul Reed Smiths, and he would drive it up and down the coast. And go to all the music stores right. and walk in and say, hey, it's me. And they'd go, Mike Squires. And he'd say, check out these new Paul Reed Smiths. And they would go, wow, we'll take a dozen or whatever it was. And then at some point, Mike was working for, he was also, what was he doing? He was demoing some kind of guitar wankery and that led to some kind of other guitar wankery. And then he met the guy that was doing the, this kind of wankery and the universal audio gig came up and Mike recommended Eric and Eric got that job at, and at first it was something he was doing kind of like part-time or on his spare time. And then they offered him the full-time job, flew him to California, set him up. So it's all a big, it's all a big family game out here. I never liked Paul Reed Smith's. I didn't like a thing about him. And so the whole time that Mike was, um, that Mike was repping Paul Reed Smith's, it never, it never occurred to me to ask if I, if there was a Paul Reed Smith in it for me. And, and it never occurred to Mike to mention it because we both knew that I didn't want one. And it's a, it's very rare in life, very rare in rock and roll where, where there's like a, really good guitar like Paul Reed Smith would be that a guitar player like me who likes guitars would not be interested in. But, uh, but Paul Reed Smith's are like a, um, they're, they're, they're some kind of litmus litmus test. 
if I had a Paul Reed Smith right here in the room, I would sit and tinker with it for sure. Mm. But I, I don't think I could ever fall in love with that guitar. I never did. That's why I sold it. But there, there are people, there something you know, missing just, for me, something, a little something missing. I could never put my finger on what it was because it's beautifully made. The inlays, the bird inlays are so beautiful. Uh, but I don't know. It, was, it missed something. Even the Epiphone Les Paul that I had years before that had something. I put some um, DiMarzio pickups in there. Oh, DiMarzio pickups. Yeah, that's a common common thing to do. Put DiMarzio's in your Epiphone Les Paul. Beefed it up, made it almost, I was, you know, channeling Slash for a little while. Sure. Yeah. Slash's famous DiMarzio equipped Epiphone Les Paul's Mm -hmm. signature models. Mm -hmm. There is some, you know, Paul Reed Smith is a guy and he still lives. He walks the earth and Squires uh, knew him because he worked for him. And, uh, you know, Paul Reed Smith made these guitars. He did the he did the thing that so many people have tried to do because there's this whole class of people that fall somewhere between woodworkers and and soldering iron jockeys who their dream is to make guitars that are great. They just want to make guitars that are great. They don't even want to make guitars and sell them. They're not even interested in in all of that. They just want to make great instruments because there's this mythology around the instrument craftsman that goes back to Stradivarius. The idea that you with your hands are going to make a guitar that changes the world somehow. Brian May and his dad making that, that making his signature guitar out of a mantelpiece that was made fireplace. Yeah. The fireplace because the, the wood, the tree got hit in a lightning storm and you know, all this stuff. The weirdest thing is Brian May had never even played guitar and his first guitar was the one they made at home. They wrapped their coils for the pickups themselves. Every, every, there's, there's like for me, I could not be further away from the, the, whatever the wellspring of that kind of desire is. I don't want to wrap my own pickup coils. I don't want to carve a guitar out of a fallen mantelpiece that was hit by a lightning. I just want to, I, but I do want a great guitar. I want a, I'm constantly searching for the guitar that is the, because we all, all, all musicians feel like the guitar itself has music in it. And you want to find one that's got all this music in it. Um, Jason Isbell famously just recently, um, got his hands on the Les Paul that was played the, the Les Paul that was played by the guitar player for Leonard Skinner and his, you know, this it's a 59 Les Paul and it's worth a half a million dollars. And, there's, I don't think as well as Jason Isbell is doing with his Grammys and his, you know, his hot life. <laughs> don't, I don't think that there are many gigging musicians that can afford $500,000 guitars that aren't 
those that aren't the the like guitar slinging guitar guitarists guitarists mm-hmm. like sure slash can afford a 59 less paul but like jason isbell is still a working gigging normal guy he's not he's not like a stadium rocker and i think the, the guitar player joe bonmassa is famous in the in the rock music world for going around and collecting every time somebody finds some amazing guitar their first thought is maybe joe bonmassa will buy this and he does. He has one of these guitar collections that when he dies, it's going to there will be a museum just of his guitars because he's because he's made a study of them and he's bought all the right ones. But my sense of this this um fifty nine Les Paul that belonged to Ed King, um the Skinner guitar player, my sense is that there was some kind of like deal that happened where, and I don't know the exact terms of it, obviously that uh, is not public record and I'm not close enough with Jason that I would ask him, but it seems like the liner, the, the estate of Ed King, his family and others worked out an arrangement where that guitar is now in the hands of Jason Isbell. And, and it's not clear whether it's a lifetime lease or whether some and how do benef- you, what's your, benefactor what's, bought it for him. What is your take on a permanent or indefinite loan? Like what, what, what do you feel about? How do you feel about that? I feel bad about it. See, I don't like that. I don't want, if somebody said, look, Dan, you can use this thing. And my son is the same way. You can't have it, but you can use it as long as you want to use it. He, he would still like me. I would no, I don't want it. It's it's. I don't know. Something just feels unnatural about that. The apartment that I lived in when I lived over in um, on the block where, which is right now, and I don't know for how much longer, the center of the chop, um, Capitol Hill occupied zone. My apartment there was in a building that had, that was a, a former tire warehouse. And when the tire warehouse got converted into apartments, you know, that neighborhood, that whole neighborhood, which is now the heart and soul, the center of Capitol Hill, where all the bars are and all the young people stroll the, stroll the boulevard in 1995, it was, there were no bars there. There was one bar there, the Comet. And, um, and that new, and the new venue, which at the time was called Moe's Moroccan Cafe went in there, but it was the, it was the old auto row, right? It was all, you know, auto shops and, and, um, parts supply stores and, We would like to say thank you very much to Squarespace. There's so many things that you can do with Squarespace. You can create a beautiful website that lets you turn your cool idea into 
a brand new website. You can showcase your work. You can blog. You can sell products and services. A lot of people don't know you can do that with Squarespace. And they even handle all the shipping stuff too. You'll hook up with the different shipping providers and uh, and it's seamless. It makes it so easy. You just, the, the customer decides what they want to buy and it'll figure out how much their shipping is going to be, what kind of box it needs to go in. It's crazy. You can promote your physical or online business. You can announce an upcoming event or special project that you're working on. Squarespace makes it easy for you to focus on the stuff that you're good at, which is probably not building websites. It's amazing. And even if you are pretty good at building a website, I'm not so bad at it. I don't want to do that anymore, though. That's not the thing that I want to do. I don't want to build a website for the cool thing I'm working on. I want to work on the cool thing and the website, let it build itself. That's what Squarespace does. You can get in there and regardless of the amount of experience that you have, completely customize it, tweak it, make it your own. Two people can start out with what they have these great templates, but two people can start out with the same template. And after 15 minutes, they both have a completely different site. You don't have to worry about a cookie cutter website that looks just like everyone else's. Half the time, you don't even know the site you're on is from Squarespace until you're like me. You view the source and like, they did that with Squarespace? Yes, because all the sites can look different and amazing. There's nothing to patch or upgrade ever. Built-in search engine optimization, 24-7 award-winning customer support, you name it. They are making it easy for you to make it yourself and make it stand out. You're starting a new business, making a new, getting married, whatever the thing is that you're doing, make a Squarespace site for it. And it starts so affordably, like 12 bucks a month. So go over to squarespace.com slash roadwork. Of course, that's one word because all URLs are one word. But once you're there, use the offer code roadwork, one word, and you will save 10% off your first purchase of a website or a domain. So it's one more time, squarespace.com slash roadwork. Promo code to use is roadwork to save yourself 10% off your first purchase. Thanks very much to them over at Squarespace for making this show possible. And so the building that I lived in, a guy who was, you know, kind of an empresario, got a hundred-year lease on the building and then started renting out spaces in it. He had a he had a friend of ours named Tommy who was like this kind of rock and roll carpenter. Tommy went in and threw up some walls in this space and he divided the space into probably 20 spaces that were all about 1500 square feet threw up some walls and called it good you know didn't do didn't put any plumbing in the building there was a bathroom at the end of the hall didn't really wire the spaces for electricity and then the owner of the building said all right i'm renting these out they aren't living spaces wink wink <laughs> Uh, but you know, the, the, um, the renters are responsible for improving the spaces. You can do whatever you want in within the 1500 square feet, but anything you do to the building belongs to me. And, um, and you're not allowed to live here. Wink, wink. And so we all moved into these spaces and a few of them did turn, you know, either became someone's art studio or there were a couple that became like art galleries. But down at the end of the hall, we all moved into them. 
And it was Seattle at a time when whoever it was that worked for the city that was, that was going around enforcing code, um, whenever they came around and it was like once a year, we had to very quickly convert our apartment into an art gallery (laughs) and we, (laughs) they could like go into. Yeah. And we did, we, you know, we would like hide all the beds and it was already, you know, it was already like a cool kid art gallery looking space because that's how we were all living, you know, right, paintings sure. all over the walls of our, that our friends had done. And there, we had a stage in our apartment that we, that we put on shows. And so, you know, the word would go out like the inspector's coming, but you know, I did all the wiring for that apartment. Oh, that's the one you did that for. I remember when you were talking to me about all the wiring that you did. And none of that would have passed code. No, no. I don't, nothing ever got inspected as far as I can tell. And, you know, those times when the inspector was supposedly coming to the building, we were told like not to be there, like don't even be there. So I think, you know, they just keyed into the the space or maybe the whole thing was a lie. But what was crazy is it was all based on this, what felt to me like a, like a, like an economy of popsicle sticks. How could this all be happening in a building that this guy doesn't even own some rando family that, that lives in, in Tucson, Arizona inherited this building from their great grandfather and they don't want to sell it. And so they've, they've leased it to this guy for a hundred years. And I would sit and think about it. Like no one's going to live longer than a hundred years. This guy therefore has exclusive use of this building for the rest of his life. I'm sure there are terms built in where the lease, um, you know, the, 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 the cost increases within the lease are going to work to this guy's advantage. He's betting on Capitol Hill becoming nicer and nicer. He absolutely won that bet. I'm sure that those spaces now are, Thousands and thousands and thousands of dollars. Oh, for sure. All of the improvements that I, I mean, if they are still, when they hit that light switch, if the lights that go on in that apartment are still the ones that I wired (laughs) back in 1997 (laughs) or six, um, I couldn't be more proud. (laughs) What do you think the chances of that are? I, I did, I did it right. I mean, I did it. Why wouldn't I, they have passed code then? Oh, well, you know, I'm one of those people like I'm a bad solderer because I add too much solder. Yeah. And when I take two wires and twist them together with a little, uh, with a little cap, a little, you know, plastic wire twister together cap, I really do it. You know, I twist those wires together and then I twist that cap on there. There's nothing casual about the way that I do that kind of thing. But what it means is that I overdo it. Like the way that an electrician does it, put the two wires together, stick the cap on, twist, twist, twist. The cap is designed to twist the two wires together without a lot of additional work. But I put in, I would twist them together with a pair of pliers and then twist the cap on. And I don't, you know, I don't think that an inspector is going to go in there and look at that stuff. And I no. don't think that's necessarily bad, 
But if you opened a box and looked at my work, I think a seasoned inspector would recognize that it was not done by an electrician, that it was done by a hobbyist. It just wouldn't look right because it, because I was too meticulous and in being too meticulous overdid it, you know, like over, overthought it Mm -hmm. and it all, it all, it all hangs together. And it may, it may be that that's still, I don't think those spaces remain unplumbed. You know, at some point they went in there and they plumbed those spaces. If people are living in them, if people aren't, I I don't know. I I heard after I left that place that they made porn in my apartment. That's amazing. In the early days of the, of internet porn. Amazing. But, um, but the whole thing just made me so uncomfortable. The idea that I was investing money in a space that I didn't own that what were the, and, and that those improvements, the improvements were owned by a guy that also didn't own the building. And I think that's, I think it's fairly common in the world. I think there are a lot of people whose money, whose inherited money is, is in the form of property and, all those buildings in New York city that people convert into the new headquarters of Nordstrom or whatever, that that building isn't owned by them. It's owned by somebody else and ultimately is owned by a family. And that family lives off the income of the property that they own. I get that as an ambition to, and I have, and I have friends that are kind of, that appear to be on the path to being someone who owns five houses and can retire because they've got the house they live in and then they're renting four houses that they bought cheaply and then the, they bought, but they bought wisely and the, the market caught up with them. And, and one day they were in a position where, um, after many years of, scraping by to keep these mortgages afloat and hoping that the bottom didn't fall out of it and being underwater. Uh, gradually they got to a place where it was all stable and now they're hoping that 20 years from now that these will be properties that will sustain them. But owning five houses is not the same as owning a, a, a building in Manhattan, let alone five buildings in Manhattan. Right. And whatever the, cause I know, I, I know a girl whose family owned property in Phoenix and the property was significant enough that it was what sustained the family, not just mm-hmm. her, but when she reached a certain age, like she got her portion of the income from this block of buildings or whatever that they owned. It's an intriguing universe, but I want to own anything that you give me. If you're like here, you know, you can borrow this microphone. I'm like, "Mm, I'd like to buy that microphone. Oh, I don't want to sell it, but you can borrow it. I don't want to borrow it. No, I want to either buy it or not have it. I don't even want to look at it. If I can't, if I can't totally agree, it. John, 1,000 million billion percent agree. Well, what is that, Dan? 
What's wrong with us? No, I don't know what it is. And like I said, my boy is the same exact way. I don't know why. I don't know what it is, but I feel very deeply in my soul. I feel very wrong because part of it's like, well, what if I like it? Then I'm going to want to keep it. But now I'm not going to be able to keep it because it's yours and you don't want to part with it. I don't like a lending. I don't know. I don't like, I don't like that. Like, unless it's like you go over your friend's house and you get a walk back home and, uh, and it's pouring rain, but you got to go and like, you can borrow my umbrella. Somehow that would be all right. You know, I'll borrow an umbrella. That's fine. But I don't want to borrow like a guitar or something. Also, those things are somehow very personal, aren't they? They're very personal. And I feel like there's something about it being personal that changes it. It's, It's like a personal item and you can pass on a personal item to someone and that's okay. It seems okay. But that personal item... If it's lent, it's like you wouldn't, you know, lend your wife out. Well, not me. No. I'm not married. But so. I think it's the same. It's the same concept, really. I, when I think about it, I realize that a big part of it for me is never wanting to be dependent and never wanting to be in a position where I can be manipulated or controlled. And when someone lends something to you, it and even the most generous person and and I I I recognize this is is a emotional flaw. But I immediately feel somewhat in hock to them. And now they have control over me and the control is I just see that. limited. I totally see it's, that. Yeah, it's limited to their uh, ability to say, can I have that back? But that is enough control over me that I don't, that I'm not comfortable. I don't want them to, uh, I don't want anyone to be able to say, hi, sorry to interrupt. I know you're using that thing that I lent you, but I'd like it back now, please. Especially if there's a risk that I fall in love with it. Because if I've fallen in love with it and then they say, yeah, I'd like that back. And you say, oh God, I'm really in love with it. Then they can say, well, you can keep it, but, and then add on some, some new rent, you know, some new condition. You can keep it, but you have to let me come to all your shows or you can keep it, but. You have to now it's like now they know that you want it. So they've got some, like you're saying, like they've got a power over you now. Yeah. And that's a thing that I, I don't, I honestly don't know whether I'm intrinsically afraid of it or whether I was taught to be afraid of it because my mom is deeply, deeply afraid of anyone having authority over her that she didn't knowingly enter into a contract. You know, I, she, if you try to extort something from her, she will burn down the village way, way out of scale of what the actual risk to her was. So I don't know what, and I, and I can see where I can see ways in which that was taught to her, 
through the kind of adversity that she lived through as a young person, but I can also see how it runs in her family. I can see it being a matter of pride. I can see it being kind of related to their family line and like dating way before the kind of frontier mentalities they have. So I don't know whether it's something in my blood or whether it's something that I was taught. And and I think a lot of people would say that's not something that can be in your blood. It's definitely something that you were taught, but I, I'm all, I'm all, my jury is always out on that stuff. Like, can you be natively suspicious? Um, it's, it falls into the same category of believing in God for me. Like there are lots of people that believe in science and also believe in God. And for me, I believe in science, but also believe that maybe you can be naturally suspicious or you could, or that, or suspiciousness can run in your family line right. or, um, or, a, you know, like self-reliance can, can run in, in a family and it's not taught. But I have made a lot of decisions in my life, a lot of choices that have affected where I am today, my capacity for happiness and, and, and a lot of those choices were tied to this idea that if I get in with someone, if I get too far in and the, and the first time I hear that, well, you can keep borrowing it, but that means now that you and I are friends. I also burned down the village Yeah. and, and, you know, ride out with my horse's tail on fire. I, you know, I can't tell you which, which thing is the greater threat to me. The, the extortion or the feeling of, of being then tied to a thing I didn't choose Mm -hmm. or the fear of that. And my right. willingness to, to have burned down so many things in my life based on what would actually have been a small transaction. I don't know. You got married, Dan. Yes, I now, recall now, that. Wh- what happened in your life? Here's Dan. He's, he's Dan the man. He's out. He's programming computers. He's making, <laughs> he's making bleep bloops. Mm-hmm. Yes, that's he's, right. You know, he's living his, he's, he's, you know, finger guns. Yes. Yeah. A young, a young Paul Newman. And then you meet a, you meet a gal. Yeah. Now walk me through the process where you went from, um, Dan, the, uh, the sort of fledgling, you know, man who makes his own rules. Uh huh. Yeah. Guy out there with his, um, with his, sort of utilitarianism. Right. Sure. And, uh, and then you, uh, and then you meet a lady. So what, walk me through then how you went to being married. You know, we dated for a very, very long time. And then when, how long mm, we were together, probably 
oh, it was a long time before we got married, uh, maybe six, seven years before we got married. Um, and we kind of got, we kind of got married because it like, it seemed like the financially responsible thing to do at the time we were, you know, we already owned a house together and, and, uh, and, uh, you know, had bought cars and things like that. And the, the marriage was more just like the certificate type thing that would make filing taxes easier and that kind of thing. Really? It was that much of a, yeah, we uh, were, we were content just the, the way, but you know, like our families wanted us to do it and everything else. And yeah. Huh? Yeah. It wasn't, you know, it, it, um, yeah, I think, I think for a lot of people they have, you know, they have like this idea of like, it's going to be a certain way. And, you know, for me, it was, it was more like, well, this just sort of makes sense to do, you know, it was like, yeah, this is a good time to do it. Let's do it. Sensible. It was Sens- sensible. It seemed sensible. Yeah. At the time it, it seemed like, you know, and a lot of our friends were married. It seemed like that was the thing the cool kids were doing. Uh-huh. Now you're not the only friend I have who ha- who has this story. Really? Yeah. Um I have a I have another good friend, someone that you would know who, you know, in in their, you know, in confidence says, well, you know, I, um, my wife and I kind of, you know, we dated for a long time and we liked each other and it seemed like, uh, getting married was the next, um, logical step. It was not kind of like, uh, it was not like a really passionate decision for either of us. It was much more of a practical one. And now we have two kids and we're married and own, own our own home. And, and that's, um, this, this conversation happened in, uh, in the context of this friend telling me that he thought that that's what I should do. A lot of friends when, uh, when Marlo was conceived, a lot of friends said, well, you need to get married now. And I was surprised by it, really surprised because, um, it had never, it had never dawned on me that there were so many practical marriages and maybe it's, um, maybe it's another weird thing to be, to, to be such a naive romantic and also be so afraid of entering into a contract um, but you don't, you don't like big commitments. <sighs> if you had the choice between committing to something or not committing to it, I would think you would not commit to it. Yeah, that's true. And I, I, I should be, I should be more specific and say, I think it's m- more, regarding where other people are involved. It's fine for you to commit to a thing that you are going to do. For example, uh, not use drugs or drink ever again. That was, I'm sure a a very, and is still a difficult thing, right? But like you can commit to that. John can make a commitment to that. 
But if I say to John, why don't we get lunch at four o'clock or, you know, three o'clock on this day? Cause I'm thinking of your offset lunchtime. Yeah. Yeah. That maybe that'll happen. Maybe, but like that, you're going to think carefully about that because you don't want to get pinned down. You're going to pin down having to, well, now you have to, when you made the lunch plans, you did want to have lunch, but now on the actual day, maybe you're not so hungry. Maybe you're comfortable. Maybe the leftover pizza in the fridge sounds better. Maybe you don't want to have to, you know, get dressed and go somewhere. I, uh, I think you're right. And there's a, there's another, another element that plays into that, which is that I am someone that almost never cancels. Like I have, I know a lot of people who cancel. They don't have any problem saying, oh, sorry, I know I said that I would go, but, uh, but I'm just not feeling up to it. Right. Sorry. You don't want to do that. You would be sick. It could be raining. You could have, a, have been shot in the leg somehow. <laughs> and you would still, you would say, you know, I did say I was going to be there and you'll be there. Yeah. And that includes like little things, things where the reason for me not to go is big. And the reason for me to go is small, but mm-hmm. I said I would be there. Right. And so I am, by the I, way, I would just want to say, this is another thing that we share very closely in common. If I tell somebody that I'm going to be somewhere at a certain time or that I'm going to do a thing. They can count on me to do that thing. I will do it. Even if I don't want to do it, even if I'm sick, even if I'm tired, I will, I will do, I will do whatever that thing is. And that's one of the reasons why I hate to say that I'll do anything because when I say it, like (laughs) now I'm committing to it really, really, really committing to it. Yeah. Yeah. But, but like, when you say, when you say like, would I rather not commit than commit to something? And I realize that, yes, that is, that is true. Uh-huh. As I think about it, I can't imagine that anyone would answer differently. Why would you commit to something when you didn't have to? Why wouldn't you, if it was, if it was the same, if it was like, well, either commit to coming to this or don't commit and just come if you want, why wouldn't you pick the second? Although I, I do think there are lots of people in the world that would rather commit because they know then they feel, you know, they feel secure. They feel more comfortable having made a plan. Oh, there are so many people that want to plan and I really don't want to plan because I, do, I, I don't know the future. I have no idea. You know, that when the quarantine started mm-hmm. and I realized that I was l- finally liberated from all of the <laughs> things that I didn't want to have to do sure. that I had to do all yeah, the time. Yep. And, and, and I realized that a lot of the things that I didn't even realize I didn't want to do now that I didn't have to do them. Oh, wow. I, I never wanted to do that. I right. never actually wanted to do that at all. Or hadn't for a long time. And now we've now we've entered sort of stage two of the show business quarantine, which is in some ways even worse because people now have figured out how to have these virtual experiences. And now they are just shamelessly hitting me up to do shows where 
uh, the burden of it is entirely on me. Like sit in front of your computer, set it up so that it sounds good, you know, practice and play. And then, and then we're going to, I guess, like patch you in to our feed and you're going to play a song and uh, those, and it's always for charity. And it, it's in that family of things where there's a, there is a type of person who likes putting on events for yeah. charity. Yeah. And what that person gets out of it is all the glory of having put on this wonderful event for charity. And what the charity gets out of it is, is always less than is promised or almost always less than is promised. And the burden of it falls on the people who are like, Oh yeah, I do this for a living, but I guess I'm doing it for free today. The person that put on the event, half of the time they find a way to pay themselves. And so I've, I've started getting these and because, because I started off this spring with that, um, with that event, that Rasmussen event, the foundation award, uh, panel I was on where I spent a lot of hours online on zoom calls with people doing a thing that was, uh, that had been thrown together because what, what the plan had been was that we were all going to fly to a nice hotel in Alaska and stay there for a week and do all this in person, which was like the great kind of show business junket that I love that would have just been like, yeah, shrimp cocktail and <laughs> see my friends <laughs> and hang out in Alaska. And instead it was like, nope, sit in, in the basement in front of the same computer you look at all the time on a zoom call with people you're, you never met and are never going to meet. And, uh, you know, and review all this, this stuff. It was just like, wow, this is so much less good. It ended up being a fulfilling experience, but <clears throat> I've been getting these offers of like, Hey, we're doing this show, you know, can you, can you, I know it's last minute. <laughs> can you, you know, show up on your computer and do some show, do some entertainment for us? It's like, wow, I want to do that even less than showing up with my actual <laughs> guitar at a venue. <laughs> you know, and that involves like getting up and putting on pants and going out like this has, all, it's, it's just as hard with like one tenth of the fulfillment. Although I do feel like I should be giving something to the world and I'm not sure what, I don't know what people want from me anymore. Frankly, I know there are some people who want me to go on Instagram, like John Vanderslice and play some songs I just don't know. Does it matter what people want? I don't know. Kind of. I mean, I, I do rely on people who like what I do to, um, you know, to keep giving me the, the feedback and the, um, you know, I'm talking to them right now. Right. So it, it does matter what they want to a certain extent and they all want different things from one another. So who knows what the, what the collective wants, but, but do I, I was afraid when I bought my house now 13 years ago, my, my old house, my farm that 
it was too big of a commitment. I'd never made a commitment of that sort, anything close to it. And, and I didn't know how that was going to feel. And it felt fine. It felt great. So there are, but, but as you were saying, that's a, a personal commitment and not one that involved anybody else. Now, when I, when I found out that I was having a child with a friend, I never doubted it for a minute. It never for a second did I say, oh, I don't know if I'm ready or, you know, I was already 40 mm-hmm. and, and I knew I wanted kids and I knew that this woman was solid and, and, uh, and it would be I could good, trust her. A good mom. Yeah. But I think that I was, you know, as someone who has never, uh, has never wavered on the question of whether or not having a child is, is the woman's choice. Um, you know, when I was in my twenties, if I'd had a girlfriend that said I'm pregnant and I'm having the baby and, and, um, that's what I want to do. I think I would have, whatever my fears were or whatever my doubt was, I would have just put it aside. I would have felt like that's an example of a situation where my, you know, my politics or my beliefs coincide with my feeling that life is, um, that some of the big questions in life, some of the turns, the twists and turns are out of your control and, and we should all embrace that. You know, the, the, the notion that I should be in complete control of my destiny. Right. I, I always feel like the X factor is sometimes that you get hit by a motorcycle, but other times it's just that, no, you, you know, you, um, you found yourself in a place and time and a choice was made. And if you resist it, even a little in your, even in your soul, if you resist it, you are, you're entering into, a, you're voluntarily entering into a world of punishment that it's not necessary. And so if, if when I was 25 and my girlfriend said, we're having a baby, I think I would have immediately just been like, awesome, let's do it, you mm-hmm, know, mm-hmm. onward. And, um, that would have completely changed my life experience. So when it finally did happen, I don't think the fact that I was 40, um, made me like, I, I definitely was more ready, right? At that point I, I had a home, but, um, but I think like spiritually I always was ready to do that. And it, and it, if, if any one of those women had come to me and said, let's buy a car together, mm-hmm. I would have said, whoa, whoa, <laughs> slow down. I think like, for a, lo- a lot of people, it would be the opposite. The opposite would be true. I know. I hear this all the time. People are like, oh yeah, we, well, just you. You were like, we already owned a house together. And I'm like, you bought a house with someone that you weren't married to? Whoa, crazy. I would never do that. I wouldn't buy a house with someone I was married to. 
I don't think the idea of like, of merging your finances, nothing is more alien to me. It's not even that I'm afraid of it. I just look at it through a fence like you would looking into the yard of someone from a, like a completely different culture that you're not entirely sure is from earth. Like, what are they, are they roasting a pig? Is that a pig? Does that have wings? Like buying that, like just having a shared checking account. And I have one now, a shared checking account that is, um, you know, for expenses to do with my daughter. Sure. But it's a shared checking account that I put money into mm-hmm. and never take money out of the money that goes out of it all goes out in the form of like, here are known expenses and the money is disbursed from this account into these, you know, sort of like auto paid into these other places. Mm-hmm. But to have an account like that, where I was taking money out for things and she was taking money out for things and we were both putting money in for things. I don't know how my soul would, would bear it. Mm. And so what I would do is I would have my own account. And if that wasn't allowed in the terms of the relationship, then I would have a secret account. Oh, Um, because I would need to have my own account. I would need to, I wouldn't be able to sleep at night if I didn't have my, just even just one somewhere. That's just yours. I would, I just need a little bag of coins, a bag of coins on a string around my neck because without it, I don't think I would, there would be something, um, like a, like a, like a, a buzzing in my ears that wouldn't let me sleep. But none of this changes the fact that like I've done everything to be in my daughter's day and my daughter's night. You know, last night she lost a tooth and it wasn't even a tooth that was loose. She just, it just popped out. Done. She's been, she's, she's been staying up really late. Um, because there's no, none of us have anything to do in the morning that would, that where, where we can enforce this, like it's nine o'clock lights off. So, you know, 11 o'clock at night, she'll come out of her room or I'll hear her in there with the lights off, but she's laying in bed singing. It's just like, please go to sleep. But, but I, you know, she's exactly like me. She wants to stay up until, until she absolutely collapses. But she comes out of her room at 1130 and I'm like, honey, what are you doing? And her shirt is covered with blood and she's like, I lost a tooth. Oh my God. Oh, wow. So we, you know, we wash it off and we wash her off and I'm like, well, what are you going to do with it? You know, are you going to put it under your pillow tonight? It's already almost midnight. She's like, well, I mean, I, yeah, I'll put it under my pillow tonight. We're, we're right at the place where like, she doesn't believe in anything anymore. Yeah. But somehow the she's the same fa- age as my daughter. Yeah. The tooth fairy still has a little bit of a, I don't know. There's the tooth fairy, I think is the center of the doubt when mm. the tooth fairy falls, 
everything will fall. My kids will believe in anything that gives them money. <laughs> well, she, so she came in this morning. So, so in the middle of the night, right, I write her this letter and I do it all in calligraphy and, and, uh, put it under her pillow. And I happen to have a <laughs> Sacagawea dollar, which is what the tooth fairy is always no, left always. her. Same here. And, uh, and she comes in this morning and she's like, look at this letter. And I look at it and I'm like, wow, nice letter. And she's like, she puts the paper up to her nose and she goes, because I used a silver Sharpie. Mm. She says, it smells like Sharpie. And I said, does it? She's like, yeah. And I feel like this is a silver Sharpie. But I looked around the house and all the places I thought there was a silver Sharpie, there, there isn't one now. So I'm not sure... Like she's getting all forensic about it. Mm -hmm. Like, oh, sweetie, it's possible that the tooth fairy would use a silver Sharpie. And she's like, but the tooth fairy is a tiny little fairy. How would a tooth fairy even hold a Sharpie? And I'm like, I mean, you know, the tooth fairy gets big and small depending on whether she has to make it through an aperture or not. So we're having all of these these conversations now that are like, scientifically, mm-hmm. let's examine how this letter got under my pillow. But it would never, as the years have gone on, and she's, she's nine and a half now, the prospect of flaking on her it's so much less likely today that I would ever flake on her than it even, than it even was yesterday. Flake in, it, in what, in what way flake? Well, flaking, like, like saying you're going to do something and then not doing it. Yeah. And yeah. the, and the, and the largest one of those being, I said that I would be your dad and raise you to adulthood. And I met another girl or I have a business opportunity or, this relationship with your mom isn't working out. It's cramping my style or whatever a hundred excuses people use to flake and go do what they want to do. You're talking about flaking in the sense of, uh, like, like not being a part of her life anymore. Yeah. Yeah. And you've told me that you've seen and known people who have done that. Oh, sure. I mean, the 1970s and eighties were, were, um, half, half of the, half of the families I knew yeah, were that, but also people I know now, you know, it's, it's extremely common in some ways. It's the expectation mm. that, um, and in, and in our, in our conditions here, the fact that, that her mom and I never married and that I'm a musician and that I hate committing to things uh, I don't think anybody thought for a minute that I wouldn't have pursued my own interests somewhere that took me, um, that took me away mm-hmm. that I wouldn't have flaked in other words. Although I knew I would never flake and not just, not just flake in the big way, but like the, the little flake, which is just like, Oh yeah, you know, She's with her mother's Tuesdays and Thursdays and she's with me Wednesdays and Saturdays. And a big part of the, a big part of why that's not the state of affairs is that I didn't, I didn't want it to be. And I made a lot of concessions, a lot of concessions so that it wouldn't be. Um, 
and concessions that are that I made willingly that aren't that aren't ones that I feel like have stolen anything from me in the same way or or in the exact way that I would not buy a used car with a girlfriend because that would imprison me somehow mm. like absolutely make me feel imprisoned um the concessions that I've made in my in my own life in order that you know my daughter's mother feels like I'm her partner and that we work together as a team and that I'm that I'm reliable and dependable not just where it concerns my daughter but where it concerns the family and what everybody needs and that doesn't feel like I'm imprisoned at all it feels like just the my natural responsibility and trying to explain that to other people or trying to understand even for myself why why those two things are still true because if 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 she came to me and said i think we should buy this used car together i would say whoa whoa why don't i just buy it and if she said you no, let her I think borrow should, it then right yeah i think we should <laughs> i think we should buy it together i'm like well look either you buy it or i buy it why would we buy it together and if she said we have a child together. Can we not buy a car together? I would say, there's to two totally different things. I don't want to buy a car together. That's like way too much. 